4: Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. For those that attend college, when you're there and you first leave home, your life is totally centered in that environment. For many people, it's the first time they ever leave home. And you're around new people, you're around new experiences. I don't know. Let's face it. You're the captain of the ship at that point in time. It's terrifying, but it is equally thrilling. It's challenging, but it's an exciting time. And, you know, it's it's kind of rote to say that you need to enjoy it because you'll never be in this situation again. Kind of in the academic bubble, if you will. Little body bags today. I want to talk about a case, actually two cases that occurred in a university town. And I would have to say that. Even by my assessment, probably two of the most horrific deaths that I've ever covered in the news media. Today, we're going to go back in time and we're going to talk about the homicides of Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom in a little rundown house in East Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. Dave, I got a full disclosure here. I gotta tell you why I wanted to do this case. It was back in 2018 that Eric Boyd was finally indicted. He was one of several people, a member of a crew, if you will, that perpetrated this horrible double homicide. And it wasn't Dave, and we're gonna get into this. It wasn't merely a homicide. And I know that hope that doesn't sound too terribly dismissive. But he was actually convicted in 2019. And the reason I wanted to talk about this case. First off, it has got certainly has forensic value, but it affected me. As you know, I cover things on television shows. I'm a talking head on many of these platforms, and I happened to cover this one for the entire time, the Eric Boyd case. And to me, it didn't get a lot of traction, but yet it was one of the most horrible cases with the details. I'll put it to you this way. The people that I was covering the case with, who are many of them are seasoned defense, and prosecutor, uh, prosecuting attorneys, they recoiled. This is a story that began on January
0: 6, 2007. Let me just give you the story very quickly, and then we'll get into who Eric Boyd is. It was on the night of Saturday, January 6, 2007. Christopher Newsom and his girlfriend, Shannon Christian, her name is spelled C-H-A-N-N-O-N, Shannon Christian. Christopher was 23. Shannon was 21. And they were just enjoying each other's company before they left to go to their friend's house for this birthday party. As a matter of fact, Christopher Newsom was standing outside Shannon's forerunner. She was in the front seat in the driver's seat. and He's standing there at her door talking to her. They had a place to be, but they were comfortable just with one another. It's after 1235 in the morning because we know that according to phone records, Shannon spoke to her mother at 1235 that morning. You know, Saturday night, Sunday morning, twelve thirty-five a.m., where Shannon told her mom that they were going to visit a friend, watch some movies, and be home later. And we know that sometime after twelve thirty-five a.m., these four men in that parking lot approached with guns drawn, shoved Christopher Newsom in the car, and took off. They kidnapped them at gunpoint and took them to this rundown rental house where. They held this young couple against their will and did the most heinous, horrific crimes. That's what this group of men, and a woman, by the way, did
4: to this young couple. Yeah, they had entered into this confederacy of evil. And backing up a little bit, my understanding at the time is that with this crew, they were being searched for by a drug dealer at some point in time, and it has been offered up One of the explanations for them targeting these just beautiful kids was that they just happened to be there. They just happened to be there. It was a crime of opportunity. And with both Shannon and Christopher, they're at or forced into Shannon's vehicle, which was actually her forerunner and made to drive to this location, which now when you talk people in Knoxville. And this happened in East Knoxville, Tennessee. There's a name now that is just synonymous with evil because of what happened in this little house. And the name of the street is called Chipman Street. And it was this tiny white framed house. It looks like you, if you had more than two people in this place, you were going to have to shoehorn everybody else in there. It was a tight, confined space where the amazing thing is that there was so much trauma inflicted upon this young couple that there had to have been screams, Dave. You no, know, the other part of this is when they were abducted, when they were, and they were abducted as a couple,
0: they were in her car, but the four men show up with guns. There was another car following behind them as these four men with guns pushed them into the car and immediately subdued them and took off. There was another car following them that night. And that's the card that actually later on is where Eric Boyd comes into play. We'll explain in a minute. But the bottom line on all of this is that while it was a crime of opportunity, this group of thugs had a plan. They needed another vehicle to go about their drug business. You said they were looking that a drug dealer or something might have been looking for them. They needed a car that was not something anyone knew they had. This forerunner fit that bill. So they get them back to this rundown place on Chipman Street. And immediately they tie them up. They blindfold them. They take them to this residence while they're blindfolded. So they don't know where they are. The home was rented by Lamericus Davidson. Christopher Newsom. even though we don't know, even to this day, there are certain things still not known about this. But what we do know is shortly after the abduction, Christopher Newsom was taken from the Chipman Street home, tied up and shot three times. His body was thrown on some railroad tracks. They put a comforter or a blanket of something over his head. He had a sweatshirt wrapped around his face. And we'll get into the very specifics about those shots because they actually mean something. I've got a question for you about it, Joe. But then they lit him on fire. OK, that was Christopher Newsom's death prior to his death. He was beaten, raped, traumatized. And I don't know if they made him listen to the same things happening to his girlfriend because she, too, was raped, multiple times. Beaten about the head. And whereas Christopher was allowed to die after a few hours,
4: she was not. She wasn't allowed to die. She was not given that release to escape the pain that faced her. And her agony, Shannon's agony, went on. It went on for another 24 hours while she was at the mercy of people that just kind of randomly dropped into her life. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and a big shout out to AstroPro for sponsoring this episode and providing free samples. I live in an area where allergies are a day-to-day issue, and finding an over-the-counter option for relief is like the holy grail. I use AstroPro, and I strongly recommend you give it a try. Get fast acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A S T E P R O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. From BBC Radio 4,
1: Britain's biggest paranormal podcast,
4: is going on a road trip. I've worked a lot of cases along what are referred to as railway beds, which is kind of the area that immediately surrounds railroad tracks. And certainly in the middle of tracks, I've had all manner of deaths that have occurred. And I think the reason people are found dead around tracks with some level of frequency, Dave, is that they're isolated. They're hard to get to many times. You have to walk some distance to get down to the railway bed that's in there. And yeah, I mean, people have them that pass outside of their homes, but there are long stretches of of railway where there's no homes around it. It's isolated. There's generally foliage that's all the way around it. So it's going to obscure anything that you do. But this, I do know the surfaces that surround them, the environment is very hostile. There's broken glass, a lot of Fill gravel that's laying around, broken vegetation, thorns, nails, discarded railway debris, things that come off of trains, not to mention the remnants that people leave behind out there. So it's a very austere environment. And certainly I think that it was in this case. And this is where Christopher Newsom was found, Dave.
0: They didn't kill Christopher Newsom at the house and then drag him up there and drop him on the railroad track. In reality, Chris Renusum was not killed at that house. He was actually tortured. He was, again, raped with objects and beyond because they had actual proof. He had to have heard what was happening to his girlfriend, even blindfolded. You could still hear that surely they weren't just focused on him and attacking him alone. And so he's now being walked. They walk him from the car to these railroad tracks and Oddly enough, there was a uh, dump truck guy who actually noticed the activity going on at the house this night. Odd traffic for that time of night, seeing lights on that weren't usually on, cars coming in and out. And as Christopher Newsom was being taken away from the house and taken to the railroad tracks, it was
4: noted that he was barefoot. I'm glad you also used the T word a little while ago, torture, because that's what this comes down to. This is the same way that you would treat Say, for instance, a prisoner of war where you strip them down, you're humiliating them, you're dehumanizing them. And certainly you couple that with what's being done in an adjacent area to Shannon. And I agree with you. I think that probably there was an element of torture that was involved, I think, from an auditory standpoint. Uh, Let's face it. He's a young man. He loves this young lady. And can you imagine not being able to protect her? And you're surrounded by savagery at this point in time. And there's nothing that you can do to mute it in any way or certainly interdict it. You're at gunpoint. They walk you out of the house. There has to be a feeling that comes over an individual as they're headed out this way that this is not going to end up well. Maybe you're so stunned that you don't have true grasp of reality at that point in time. Part of me hopes that that was the case. But this I do know. When they got him out there, and i got to tell you, one of the findings is that when they did his postmortem examination, they noted that he actually had a sock stuffed in his mouth. With any kind of object that is placed into the mouth, particularly something that is as expandable as some type of cloth sock, you have a chance that this thing is going to expand in your oral cavity, and when that begins to happen, first off, he's been traumatized. So he is shallow breathing already, just taking in little gulps of air as best he can, trying to catch his breath. He's got a sock stuffed in his mouth, probably to keep him muted. I'll use that word again, so that he's not going to scream out. Uh, he's not going to alert anybody. And as they walk him to this location out in the middle of the tracks, and trust me, These people have been to this area before. They've been out there to these tracks to, Lord only knows, do whatever it is that they were doing. The medical examiner described Christopher's death from this perspective. Now, he dies of multiple gunshot wounds. Let me back up to something.
0: Yeah, sure. As you mentioned, uh, when the body was found, the body was tied with a belt around the ankles, and a shoelace around the left wrist, and that was positioned behind Newsom's back. His head and face had been wrapped with what appeared to be a sweatshirt. Another shoelace had been wrapped around his head and mouth to keep that sock gag together. And there were, again, now the, the visible bullet holes. Okay, When they looked at him, when they first found it, they saw the one bullet wound to the right side of his
4: head. But there were more bullet wounds than just that one. This brings us to an interesting point, I think. When you think about the binding that's going on here, let's face it, we had mentioned how this was a crime. I hate to use the word crime because it is so inadequate to what we're talking about, but it is a crime nonetheless. And when you think about a crime of opportunity, they were not very well prepared. And I really, I really wonder for the perpetrators as they. Took this young man out there, and they've now got him bound up. They've got this shirt around his face. And you know why they had a shirt around his face? So they didn't have to look at him. That's why they have a shirt around his face. They've gagged him. They don't want to hear him. You're on this kind of continuum of dehumanization. You've taken away his voice, you've taken away his person in in a visual sense, and you're dehumanizing him. You really wonder how long they lingered over the body to think. We've already committed something really heinous here. We've raped this young man and maybe have done insertions of foreign objects. His bottom side was just ravaged, according to the medical examiner. Tremendous amount of hemorrhage, tearing, this sort of thing. Are they standing there contemplating, thinking, do we want to go forward with this? Because now if we take the next step, we've committed a homicide. But like you had said, he does wind up sustaining three gunshot wounds. These were not, and you know, Christopher was a tall, he was a tall kid. He was a robust country boy, what he came down to. So when they did execute him, and let's make no bones about this. This is an execution. It's a torture and an execution. He shot three times. There's two rounds that are more laterally oriented in his head. But what the medical examiner pointed out is kind of fascinating. She said that that the Coup de grace, if you will, the final fatal shot entered the back of his head, had a downward trajectory. So I use the term asymmetrical many times when I talk about victims versus perpetrators. You've got an individual that is in a dominant role that is standing above him. We have three ways that we'll classify gunshot wounds. Some people will say there are four, but let's just keep it simple. We'll say three. We've got contact, we've got intermediate range. And then we've got indeterminate range. Some people say distant. I like to say indeterminate. So indeterminate means there's no soot deposition. There's nothing. You're not going to have a muzzle abrasion or anything like that. Intermediate range means that you will have some powder deposition around the defect, which is the bullet hole, the entrance. And then the next step is contact. And You can have a contact, and some people classify it as a loose contact or press contact or hard contact. Those terms are used interchangeably. So when the doctor is examining this wound on the back of this young man's head, she says that this is a contact gunshot wound. She opined that it's consistent with somebody having been standing directly over him. He was either kneeling or laying down. They took the weapon and placed it directly to the back of his head and discharged the weapon. So what you have is the tip of that weapon actually making contact with his hair, his skin, everything there. You'll have a little bit of searing because you know if you see a a firearm fired at night, you'll see a little bit of flame coming out. There's a lot of heat escaping, a lot of hot gas. You'll get a little bit of a crispy edge around there and then you'll have soot deposition. That will also occur. And many times you'll get fractures in the skull that are related to the projectile, but they are just as much related to this hot gas being injected into the skull. And what is we all know what hot air does. Hot air expands, right? So as it expands, many times you'll see a fracturing of the skull with these press contact gunshot wounds. This I do know. This young man who loved this young woman died blinded by a t-shirt, gagged by a sock, and bound up, left in the midst of a complex of train tracks, executed all alone. And then, as they left his body there, they set it ablaze. As horrific as Christopher Newsom's death was, there is one saving element here that I have to emphasize, just in case any of my listeners are curious. When the Friends of pathologists did their examination, it was determined that at the time of his death or at the time that his body was sent ablaze, he was not alive. So that means that they would have done an extensive examination on his lungs to see if there was any fire debris in his lungs, if he had inhalated anything, that apparently was not the case. But I do know this, you were discussing this, Dave, when they did the rape kit, and people don't might not understand that, yes, rape kits are performed on males as well. I've done many of them over the course of my career. They were not able to recover any biological sample. And what I mean is any kind of seminal fluid, any kind of sperm, anything from that had been deposited on or within his body. And it's certainly plausible that heat could have destroyed that. But Dave, as bad as Christopher's death was, while he was being led away and, you know, eventually killed, Shannon has been left back on Chipman Street. She's still alive at this point.
0: I know that uh, from the timeline that I was able to pull together, because I was kind of curious about when they separated him, when they pulled him away to kill him. Get him out of because you know what? At that point, he hadn't been damaged so much that he couldn't become a threat to them again. Big country boy and athlete, works in carpentry. He was not going to be a passive figure if given half a chance, and they were afraid of that. That's why they had to strip him down, make him walk barefoot on the railroad tracks, dehumanize him, kill him, and light him on fire. But at one thirty that morning, an employee of a business located on next to the Shipman Street home. Said, testified that he saw a Forerunner. Uh, Shannon owned uh, and drove a Forerunner. We know that was the car that they were kidnapped and carjacked in. This uh, employee saw the Forerunner parked with its parking lights on in front of the Chipman Street house. Behind that was a white car that was also seen earlier behind the Forerunner when they took off and brought him over. The white car later identified as the white Pontiac belonging to Eric Boyd's cousin. Lights were on in the home. And the employee testified there appeared to be a lot of activity in the house. This is at 1.30 in the morning. The reason I point that out is as you try to figure out, we know she was alone in the house without him. We know that, that he was taken, but we don't know exactly when he was taken. We do know this, that an employee testified that he saw four black men drive by in the Forerunner. He saw the vehicle again at 6.45 a.m. parked near the house on Shipman Street. At about seven forty five that morning, a railroad employee working on a nearby railroad thing saw smoke near the tracks and it wasn't that seeing smokes near the track wasn't enough to make somebody go check it out apparently because it was several hours into the five hours before they showed up and actually discovered body was reported on the tracks at twelve twenty four pm now the reason I point that out is from we know you know in a twelve hour window we know that Shannon's talking to her mom at 1235, and then we don't know from there, to 1224, when his body, when Christian's body is found on the tracks. So that's a 12-hour window for him from beginning to end, however, and we don't know when. We know that the fire was on at 645, so again, a number of hours for him, for Christian Newsome. However, Shannon
4: was going through something that was not letting up had mentioned a promise of hope, that there was an inkling of hope. At at one point in time, one of her attackers actually paused long enough to tell her that they were going to let her go. They were going to let her go with the promise that she would not say anything to anybody. And who knows what the inner workings of that person's mind were at that point in time. Why would you tell this to her? But we do know that she had been sexually assaulted in multiple ways throughout, you know, this period of time when she was being held in captivity to include vaginally, rectally, and orally. And there is a tremendous amount of evidence that is discovered at autopsy per the forensic pathologist of this. One of the most glaring bits here is that when the examination on Shannon's body was conducted, particularly relative to her mouth, she had been assaulted so brutally, this oral sodomy that had taken place, that it had actually ripped away multiple layers of tissue within her oral cavity. The way you can appreciate this at Autopsy Dave, and we have to be able to discern, and we have to do this for the court. The court wants to know this. The public needs to know this, is that we have to establish if these injuries did in fact occur, were they something that she had before she was kidnapped, had she sustained some kind of oral trauma? And if that's the case, then you would note, particularly when you took sections of the tissue from the mouth, you would see that there was healing going on. The next phase to that is the most critical phase for this, is that you assess, is this fresh? And the reason and the way you kind of delineate that, particularly when you're doing a microscopic examination of the oral tissue, is that you're going to look and you're going to note that there is recent hemorrhage. There's no healing that's going on in there. So you know that this trauma that she's sustaining in her mouth, which is extensive, is immediately adjacent to the sexual assault. That she's undergoing and did go through for hours following this, just on and on and on. And this is not even touching the assaults that took place in the other regions of her body.
0: So you can actually determine if a wound is fresh within a day, two days? I mean, you, you mentioned, could these injuries have taken place before this happened? I mean, I know that we're going to talk about a dream world, weird sequence of events here, but a defense team could then stand up and say, look, yeah, my guy was there when something happened, but this was, she was already like that. When they kidnapped her, she was already like that. She had all these injuries when they
4: were carjacked. A defense attorney worth their salt. I have to say this because defense attorneys do their job. They have a specific job they have to do. And they would ask, and this is a dangerous question to ask to a forensic pathologist on the stand, because the forensic pathologist is the court-qualified expert that's sitting there. So when you ask this question, you're taking a risk. Doctor, in your opinion, is there any indication that these injuries may have occurred prior to her being taken? In some circumstances, defense attorneys might attempt to impugn the character of her boyfriend as well, because they're attempting to defend. And that just... It just makes people's blood boil. But, you know, defense attorneys will do that, and they will ask that question. But here's the flip side of that. If you ask a forensic pathologist that question, they are going to answer it, and you will not be pleased with the answer because what they will say is that, no, these are the indicators that we look for in the process of healing. And you can see them sometimes within... 12 to 15 hours after an injury has occurred. And certainly within 24 hours and more and more and more, the further you move away from the injury, the pathologist will say, oh no, there was no healing here. This is something that happened in the immediate and it is immediately adjacent to her death. Her body never had a chance to recover from any of this and she wound up this traumatized. And after being that traumatized, in
0: every way one can be brutalized sexually. These criminals used bleach. They poured bleach down her throat. They scrubbed her body with bleach with brushes so hard that even this cleaning using the bleach damaged her private parts. Yes. Which goes to how sick these individuals were. They were not cleaning her to clean her. They were trying to
4: get rid of evidence. Right. And this is important to remember. If you've ever been in your laundry room, you've had to bleach anything, you you splashed bleach on something. And of course, you don't want to get it on your clothes. You know, how many times we use bleach in the. My wife gets on to me about this. Don't spray that bleach on. uh, You've got your good shirt on, or you've got this shirt. You're going to ruin that shirt. That's the effect that bleach has. But when it comes in contact with our skin, bleach burns. It's not some kind of benign substance that gets on to us. And one thing that you would see in these. So called cleaned areas. I hate to use that term because uh, it implies something with a human being. They're trying to clean themselves. No, they're trying to destroy evidence, Dave. That's what this comes down to. You would actually see an inflammatory response to an already traumatized area. The cells the membranes. You would see this. There would be an inflammation depending upon how how long she lived. And she did live. She was alive with the bleach going into the, the open cuts on her body that were still bleeding.
0: They're pouring bleach in her mouth. They're pouring bleach all over her body into open wounds that were bleeding. They're scrubbing these with bleach again, not to clean her, but to destroy evidence. Yes. And she's alive the whole time. And by the way, saying, I don't want to die,
4: telling these people, I do not want to die. I don't want to die. The level of inhumanity that this reaches when you begin to really kind of try to process this case is something that none of us can perhaps feature. I hope none of us can. But it's one of those things that you begin to see the extent to which this goes, their attempt to destroy evidence. But after all of this is done to Shannon, they still have a problem. They have a living, breathing witness at this point. Remember, she's still capable at this point in time to vocalize, to plead for her life. I don't want to die. And I'm thinking all the time, she's probably somewhere in her mind, she's thinking about Christopher. So what do you do with her? Well, the next thing they do is they actually take a white plastic bag and put it over her head. Trash bag? I got the impression that it's either a household trash bag, more than likely placed it over her head, and then contained her within two other bags, and then place her inside of a garbage can. And here's the thing about it is she is contained and bound within this garbage can to the point where she's contracted so that she's in and the... Forensic pathologist described it like this, that she was in a forced fetal position. So just imagine a fetal position. We all know this, where you have a baby with the arms pulled in and their head is down toward their knees. She's being down, forced. This is a grown woman in the bottom of this thing. And she's contained in bags. And so she's down in this position so that she is in this contracted position placed into this small space. And covered. So not only are you in a covered environment in the sense that the space that you're in is very small and with limited oxygen, by the way, now you're even further compromising her ability to uptake oxygen because she's got a bag overhead. She's contained within other plastic bags. These things are not permeable. You're not going to be able to receive oxygen. They don't breathe. All right. And she's left essentially to die. Now, there's two things that we need to think about when it comes to her cause of death. The manner of death, obviously, is a homicide. This is an asphyxial death, but this is what we refer to as a positional asphyxia. I think in the past I've I've mentioned positional asphyxia deaths before, but it's literally in a position so that you are so tightly compromised in the attitude that your body is in that your chest can no longer rise and fall. You can't expand to uptake oxygen or to exhale. And even if you do exhale, you're going to be rebreathing the same air. One hope, I think, in these circumstances is that this led to a condition which we refer to as anoxia, which can make the person kind of loopy or drunk to a certain degree. The brain is being slowly depleted of oxygen and that she was in some way numb to it. But, Dave, she was alive when they put her in the bottom of that thing.
0: When you say positional asphyxiation, and that's what she died of being asphyxiated, but and she, we know that she lived not, they can't guarantee us a certain time. right? But if she had been discovered in time, could she
4: have survived? She probably could have, perhaps. And I'm not even talking on the, the psychological side. She would have borne scars from this for years to come, just the mere exposure to the bleach. But here's the one saving grace, Dave. Here's the one saving grace. Because these perpetrators, these criminals now, because this whole crew has been convicted, decided to contain her body, they left behind the biggest clue of all. There was specific DNA that tied these perpetrators, tied that evidence that Shannon's broken body was able to give up to the forensic scientist, and it revealed who actually perpetrated this crime. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags.
3: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast. Is going on a road
4: trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This
3: is Uncanny USA. He says, Somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare.